Good morning. <clears throat> We're in the fifth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses, 20, or verses 12 through 21. Hopefully I got that right on your sheet. I think my sheet is wrong. It's actually 12, not 21 through 21, but 12 through 21. Something dyslexic happened there, at least in my notes it did. I've entitled this sermon, What He Ate Killed Us. I know, it's kind of a strange thing, but it's true. A man was trying to convince an acquaintance that one individual can make a lasting impression on others. After a rather heated discussion, his friend continued to doubt this principle, so to prove his point, the first man declared that he would introduce a new word into the English language. That night, he chalked on the walls and the pavements throughout Dublin, Ireland, four letters, Q. U-I-Z. He chose these, re- these letters completely at random out of the alphabet. The next morning, everyone who saw this unusual expression was baffled by it. One person after another would ask, well, what does it mean? It wasn't long until the newspapers took up the question, and eventually this strange-sounding word was on the lips of everyone. Thus, the term quiz was incorporated into the language as a synonym for questioning. That's how that word came to be. The originator had won his argument. He had left a lasting impression on many people simply by creating a new word for the English language. Romans chapter 5, Paul presents us with two individuals who, through one single act each, have had an awesome impact on the human race. This morning, I'm going to talk about theology probably a little more than I usually do. The book of Romans teaches us a lot of theology. So that's to kind of be expected as we go through the book of Romans, as we make this journey. But listen, I know that theology doesn't excite everyone, okay? So don't get out your pillow and take a nap just yet, though. It doesn't do all that much for me either. As much as I enjoy theology, theology in itself doesn't do much for me. It only really does something for me in as much as it helps me to connect with who God really is and who he wants to be for me. That's really the importance of theology. It's not about the book learning. It's not about the weird terms. I may use a few of those this morning if I do. My wife's sitting over here and she'll call my attention to that so that I can explain myself. Because I need to sometimes, because I forget. I just go off on a tangent. Theology, for the sake of theology, folks, is vain, and it is an empty pursuit. One of the reasons why we make the joke about seminary, seminary is actually a place where pastors are supposed to go to learn how to be a pastor. But basically, it's a place in America where people go to learn theology. So instead of calling them seminaries, we call them cemeteries because more people come out with a dead faith than went in. Uh, The study of theology can actually take your faith right out of you. It's a vain pursuit for the sake of theology alone. But theology for the sake of relationship with God, that is indispensable. That is worth more than gold. With that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I had considered reading this in two different uh, versions, the NIV and then to read it out of the Message Bible. The Message Bible says such a fantastic job of laying this out. The problem with that is I ended up with so many words in my sermon last night that I was trying to figure out how do I cut things out? And that was one of the things that had to go was a rereading of the passage in the Message Bible. So I'm reading this morning out of the NIV, starting in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, remember, we always have to ask what the therefore is there for. He's attaching this to what he said earlier, okay? Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. What he means by that is, yes, even though they had the law, okay, and he's speaking specifically to the Jewish law here, okay, Moses was the lawgiver for Judaism. Even though they had the law, they weren't accountable. They didn't have the law yet. They weren't accountable to that. Didn't matter. Man still sinned. The consequences of sin, according to the Garden of Eden, was death, right? So death still reigned, even though the law had yet to be penned. It had yet to be written down. Death, the consequences of our sin, still had the upper hand in our lives. That's what he means by that. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. Why? Because they didn't have the commands yet. As did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But, and I love the buts in Scripture, you know, they always turn the corner for you. But the gift is not like the trespass, trespass meaning sin. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, by the sin of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, flow to the many? In other words, if sin by Adam had such a destructive force on all of mankind, which it did, how much more the grace that we receive through Christ to be reconciled to God, does that have import into the human race? That's what he's talking about here. Again, verse 16, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and it brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, here he draws his conclusion. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, This passage, a lot of words, huh? And it it gets a little complicated when you're trying to figure out what all this means. 
there are two particularly difficult passages in the book of Romans. At least there's two that I think cause a lot of trouble for people who are trying to figure out, especially theologians, trying to figure out what they really mean. That's Romans chapter 7, pretty much the whole bloody chapter, okay? Theologians differ on on what the whole thing means and, and what its import for us means. And this passage in front of us today actually causes a lot of people to go off in their theology just because it is as complicated as it is and in their efforts to understand it, they pick it apart without understanding the overall message of the passage. There has been a lot of bad theology that has sprung up from today's passage, most of which comes from the analogy that Paul uses of Adam's sin versus Jesus' righteousness. Listen, you have to understand, I am all for digging into a passage, doing word studies in the original Greek language, examining all the possibilities so that I can better understand what is being said. That's all really good stuff. It it is. However, there is a point at which such detail can detract from, even alter, the original and intended purpose of a passage. The larger teachings of Scripture, the nature of God, the character of God, must not be compromised or altered by individual words or verses. For example, I'll just give you this one as an example of what not to do, okay? Jesus saying that you must cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Self-mutilation, folks, that's not very consistent with the whole of Scripture. But the idea of letting nothing, nothing come between you and your relationship with God, even your own good self, is completely consistent with Scripture. In other words, forsake, give up, run away from, shun, turn away, completely abandon anything that would come between you and Jesus. That was Jesus' point. He didn't mean for Christians to be walking around with one eye missing and a hand gone, okay? He, doesn't like, he wasn't wanting you to be a cripple, okay? He was wanting you to understand how important it was to remove anything that would lead you into sin from your life. That makes sense. That's good theology. That's the big picture giving a construct by which we would understand the details of the individual words of a passage. Now, I said all that to give you a framework for this part about Adam's sin. You see, the big picture here that Paul is using Adam's sin and Jesus' righteousness to express is a principle, a principle that one man's actions can have far-reaching implications on other other people's lives. Adam's sin in the garden affected all of humanity. He was the first man, and he disobeyed for all of us. And he set us on a course of disobedience. The great fall of mankind started with Adam's original sin, his rebellion against the goodness of God. But in the same way, Jesus' actions on the cross provided an escape from the penalty of sin for all of mankind. Now, when I say that, you have to understand, I'm not saying that everybody is saved through Jesus. You still have to choose to be saved, okay? But his blood was sufficient for every person on the planet that has ever been born, that ever be born until he returns. 
He's not going to run out of righteousness. Does that make sense? Everybody has that opportunity. You know, it's a very simple principle to understand. One man's sin caused all this destruction. One man's righteousness caused all this redemption. I'm going to come back to that idea in the end, but I want to start with where things, well, where the wheels fell off the bus, theologically speaking. The things that go wrong when we misunderstand what the passage is really saying, and we dive into it and we try to make theology out of wrong assumptions and wrong ideas. Before I do that, I want to stop and pray, because I don't want you to get lost in this. It's, it's not complicated, but at the same time, um, there's a lot to it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you that you didn't make Scripture too difficult for us to understand. You didn't want us to be in the dark. You wanted us to understand all this stuff because it's important. It's important so that we don't get off track, so that we don't misunderstand who you are, your character, especially your love towards us, that we would understand completely your desires for us, how passionately you pursue us, how much you want to be in relationship with us, and how important it is for us to pursue that relationship. So, Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about the bad ideas first, then we'll get to the good ideas. Historically, theologians looked at this passage as kind of individual storylines. Adam sinned, therefore all sinned. And they, they just stopped there kind of thing. Well, let's talk about Adam's sin, therefore all sinned. This sinful or fallen nature it's well documented in Scripture, folks. Solomon declared, there is no one who does not sin. King David said, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Proverbs 20 says, who can say, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. The Apostle John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In Romans 3.23, which we've already covered, summed us up by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think Scripture's pretty clear about this part. That's not really the issue or the problem because Scripture doesn't leave that for us to guess about. The problem arises when you consider Adam passing his sin, his sin nature, onto his children, onto his progeny. Then people start getting weird about things. The problem started with a man named Augustine. He was one of the predominant early theologians of the church, lived in the fourth century. Augustine took this verse, this idea that through Adam we were made sinners, and he carried it to what he considered a logical conclusion. He said that since all men inherited the sin of Adam, then all men were sinners, even babies. Here's where things got weird. At the Council of Carthage in 416 AD, he maintained that 
since babies were heirs of Adam's sin, then babies who died without being baptized all went to hell. Out of this arose two theologies that are still being taught today. The first is the doctrine of infant baptism, which is being practiced at the time of Augustine till now, still practiced today. I can show you in a book I have in my library written by a prominent theologian of our day, a man by the name of R.C. Sprawl, who is, by the way, a respected theologian. I respect him. I love the book. His book is entitled The Essentials to the Christian Faith. In other words, these are the most important things, the 101 doctrines about the Christian faith, and he believes in infant baptism. The second theology that arose out of this is something that the church came up in the 1300s called limbo. Very interesting thing. I want to talk about infant baptism first. I want to look at infant baptism because really the doctrine of limbo was a response to what happens if the child dies before it's baptized, okay? So that's why we're going to take infant baptism first. The New Testament never indicates that children or infants were baptized, although it does mention that many people who came to faith brought with them their entire family or household to be baptized. An argument can be made that children were part of the household, so therefore were probably baptized, Advocates of infant baptism today say that it's not wrong to administer a sign of faith before faith is actually present. After all, in the Old Testament, they had circumcision, still practiced today in in Judaism, and circumcision was practiced purely as a sign of identification of children into the faith of the community before the child even understood what that faith was. They were circumcised on the eighth day of their life. They had no idea why they were being circumcised. I'm sure they didn't like it, but they had no idea why. So wouldn't baptizing an infant be the same for the church, the New Testament church today? You'd bring a child forward and baptize that child as a sign of faith to come, okay? That's the idea behind why some people believe infant baptism should be done. That's all well and good, by the way. It is at best an argument from silence on one hand, and, and unfortunately, it's an com- incomplete understanding of baptism on the other hand. Silence because, of course, the New Testament never talks about infant baptism. It's only inferred by the idea of household. Incomplete understanding in so much as baptism is not only about identification with the body of Christ, which is what circumcision was. It Baptism itself is also about something else. It's about repentance and a turning away of sin. It is a symbolic washing away or a cleansing from sin because the believer has repented and turned to life in Christ. It symbolizes, literally, it symbolizes death and rebirth. Romans 6, uh, 3, we'll get to this next week a little bit more. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Baptism, in baptism, when you dunk somebody under, okay, you raise them back up into new life. I mean, that's kind of what we we talk about when we baptize somebody. There's where that symbolism comes from. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That part, an infant knows nothing of. This repentance, this death, this new life, they have no comprehension of. And therefore, it's an incomplete picture of baptism to simply say that baptism is something that identifies us with the body of Christ. It is so much more than that. But the real problem with infant baptism is not about an argument from silence, and it's not about an incomplete understanding of the meaning of baptism. The real problem with Augustine's conclusion lies in the idea that baptism somehow saves. Augustine argued that babies who died before they were baptized went to hell as though baptism somehow saved the ones that did get baptized. That doesn't work. That allows for salvation by way of works. If I get that kid baptized, no matter what happens, he'll go to heaven. That is not a Christian doctrine at all. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Works cannot be involved in our salvation. Augustine started with the wrong idea that somehow these kids were going to go to hell if they didn't get baptized, that baptism would somehow save them. And because he started with the wrong idea, his suppositions went even further off as you go down the line of thinking. When you start with the wrong idea about Scripture or about God, all manner of strange things result, including this thing called limbo. Limbo is a response to what Augustine was talking about. Augustine was worried about kids going to hell if they didn't get baptized. And obviously, you can't baptize a child before it dies. Some die in birth. It'd be really hard to take care of that. Limbo was created to come against the idea of children going to hell. It alleviated the harshness of Augustine's conclusions. Limbo itself is a step above hell and a step below heaven. Apparently, it's a different place than purgatory, but it's similar in as much as it wasn't heaven and it wasn't hell. It was something in between. One of limbo's functions was to serve as an area for unbaptized children in response to Augustine's conclusions. It was a permanent place of existence if the child somehow didn't get baptized. Thus, the unbaptized infant was not condemned to the fires of hell, but they were never allowed also the comforts of heaven. It's not a very satisfying doctrine. At least, I can't imagine it being very comforting to a parent who loses a child. The problem is that it's also inconsistent with both Old Testament and New Testament theology. The Jews' view of accountability of sin in regard to children. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24 says, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. 
In Ezekiel 18, it declares, the soul who sins is the one who dies. The son will not share in the guilt of the father, nor the father share in the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. In other words, folks, I cannot be condemned for the sin of my parents. I can't inherit their punishment. Think about this. If my daddy robs a bank, I'm not required to serve his prison term. If my parents killed somebody, I'm not considered a murderer. Not in the eyes of the law and not in the eyes of God. So, since I can't be condemned for the sins of my dad, I most certainly can't be condemned for the sins of Adam, right? He's even further back on the tree. In fact, Adam's sin didn't condemn us. You need to understand that. It only passed on to us the propensity to sin ourselves. We're condemned by our own sins, not Adam's sin. The Old Testament Jew didn't consider a child to be accountable for their actions until they reached an age of understanding, which for the Jews was somewhere around 12, 13 years old. That's when a child in the Jewish faith is bar mitzvahed. Bar mitzvahed meant that you took on accountability. You became an adult which is very strange for us, but an adult at 12 or 13 uh, for Jesus' day and age was not unheard of. Uh, Many children sat the throne of kingdoms at much less age than that. In fact, many of the Jewish kings started when they were seven, eight years old. So accountability, the idea of being responsible for your actions, was put off in the Jewish thinking till 12, 13 years old. By then, they would have some kind of understanding of God, of God's laws. They'd have been schooled in the laws. The Jews still hold to this idea today. They still bar mitzvah children today. The New Testament idea of accountability is even more severe. It's more interesting. It comes from Jesus' view of the innocence of a child. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, He called a little child, and he had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see what Jesus did with that? He did the same thing that he does with so many of our other sins and comprehension of sin, okay? He increases the stakes. Jesus said, you've heard that said that it's wrong to murder, right? I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. Oh, wow, that hurts because, you know, that makes us all murderers, doesn't it? Because we've hated somebody at some point in our life. That makes us all murderers. Jesus does the same thing with the child. He puts a child in front of his disciples to teach them a lesson. Look at this child. Unless you become like this child, you cannot enter my kingdom. To enter the kingdom of God is to stand in the presence of Almighty God. You don't get to do that with sin right? You need to come as an innocent child, as a humble, innocent child. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You see how much importance he puts on that innocence? It's incredible. Matthew 19, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and hinder them not for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. 
Jesus had a very innocent view of children. So innocent, in fact, that he said, we cannot enter the kingdom unless we become like him. This stands in the face of Augustine's conclusions because Augustine did not allow for the idea of accountability from either the Old Testament view or a New Testament view. Remember, Augustine lived 400 years after Jesus. So he had both to look at. Now, Augustine is a very gifted theologian, and I want you to understand I have a lot of respect for this man. I've quoted him from the pulpit many times. And I'm sure that folks that came up with the concept of limbo were very well-intentioned. But both Augustine and the inventors of limbo were wrong. The Bible doesn't teach any of that stuff. When you start out with a wrong interpretation of Scripture, you often end up creating new kinds of theology, such as limbo, to explain more and more wrong thinking. And that's what happened here. Folks, when a child dies and they're nowhere near accountability, I think even near accountability, there is more than sufficient grace to cover that. More than sufficient grace to cover that. They are not held accountable for that. Does that make sense? That's the bad ideas that came from this passage. I just wanted to put that in front of you because I wanted to clear up if anybody's thinking about any of those things or wondering about any of those things or, or if you ever have a discussion with somebody who's wondering, Where, where's my child that passed away? You have truth right now that you can share with them. The good ideas that come from this passage are even better. All those theological ideas of limbo and all that stuff put aside, the idea that Adam passed on his sinful nature to mankind is pretty much indisputable in Scripture. But what do we do with that? We do exactly what Paul did with it in this passage. We recognize the mess that was handed down, and we move in another direction. We move toward life. We move toward health. We move literally toward Jesus. According to Popular Science, in their November uh, 2006 issue, a study led by David Martin, he's an oncologist at the Children's Hospital in Oakland Research Institute here in California, tested on mice whether their diet alone could affect their descendants. It was kind of an interesting test. The researchers fed meals high in minerals and vitamins, such as B12, which is what comes out of leafy greens, to pregnant mice that have a gene that increases the likelihood that they will grow obese and develop diabetes and cancer. Did you know mice could get diabetes and cancer? They can. Okay. These mice were probably on the side that, yeah, they were going to, by and large, get this disease. On the new diet, the mice produced offspring that were actually less vulnerable to this disease. In other words, what the mice ate affected their genetic tendencies toward disease. What Romans 5 is telling us is that Adam, what Adam ate affected our genetic tendency toward the disease called sin. When he took the fruit from the tree, wasn't the best diet choice, okay? Adam ate gave us an appetite, an appetite for sin. We didn't do anything to bring this disease upon ourselves, but we will die because of our sin if we don't deal with it. We are 
as best can be put, the unfortunate recipients of a disease that Adam brought into the world. Now, this is where the illustration kind of breaks down a little bit on the eating thing. If sin were merely a disease, then I could claim that sin wasn't my fault, right? Adam did it. <sighs> Takes a lot of the pressure off of me, doesn't it? It's Adam's fault. It's not my fault. God, I didn't do it. God can't condemn me because I couldn't help myself. Adam gave me this. What do I do now? But you know what? That's not how it works. Sorry. As Ezekiel tells us, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor the father share the guilt of the son. I don't share Adam's guilt for sin. I'm not accountable for what Adam did. Unfortunately, I can't excuse my own sin either. Uh, and Adam is not responsible for my sin. Just because Adam opened the door to its effect on my life, I'm still the one that walked through the door. Just because he infected the gene pool, so to speak, by his sin, and I now share that weakness towards selfishness, towards all manner of sin, a tendency to disobey, to give myself over to that which would condemn me, kill me. Just because I have that tendency doesn't make it Adam's fault. I, I kind of like the picture of, you know, Adam. There, there are two Adams in Scripture, Literally, Romans talks about two Adams. The first Adam is the Adam that sinned in the garden. And it says the second Adam is Christ who alleviates our sin. So I get the picture in my mind. Here's Adam from the garden opening up the door for me to walk through into sin, right? And each and every one of us took the plunge. But on the other side, Jesus stands in front of another door inviting me back into righteousness. And it's up to me to step across that threshold too, right? Jesus isn't going to forgive me unless I take the step. Adam isn't going to condemn me unless I take the step. Does that make sense? I'm the one that's responsible. The Bible teaches us basically that we are sin sick. You might ask, well, how do I get well? I am so glad you asked. When I'm deathly sick, hey, I need radical surgery, right? I need something to kill the disease that lives in me. A doctor might use chemotherapy, radiation therapy, microwave therapy. He might just get out a scalpel and cut out the disease portion of my body. But something has to die. The Bible tells me that the something that had to die for me to be healed was Jesus. The amazing thing about Scripture is that right after Romans 5 comes, Romans 6 comes with these words. Or do you not know that all of us were baptized into Christ? We're baptized into his death. He died for us. But listen, it isn't just that he died. It says that we died. We are baptized into his death. So it's more than just Jesus opening the door to righteousness. It's us walking through it, represented by our own death. Death to what? Death to sin. Death to the slavery that sin put us in so that we could have life on the other side. Does that make sense? We were buried with him 
through baptism into death in order that just as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have that new life. If being united with him like this in his death, then Scripture says certainly we will be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin, Romans chapter 6. When we were baptized into Christ, our old sin-sick self died to the guilt of the past. And when we died to sin, we became free from the condemnation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it gets better than that. In Acts 2.38, it says that when I repent of my sins and I'm baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, I also get gifted. I get something in the exchange. The gift that God gives me is his Holy Spirit to indwell me, to lead me, to guide me, to comfort me, to teach me. When I'm baptized into Christ, God's Spirit comes and dwells inside of me and begins to change the genetic makeup that Adam handed down to me. He works inside of me. He works within me and with me to heal me of the disease that Adam gave me. Remember, it was Adam's eating of the fruit that brought sin into the world just as it was that Adam ate. He brought sin into my world. So what I eat, what I take in, is what cures me as well. What we eat brings healing into our lives. What are we to eat? Well, Jesus gave us a diet plan, folks. He didn't leave it up to our imagination. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. If you learn or take anything away from this passage today. Get this. You are not condemned to a life of sin or death because of Adam. You are granted life and life more abundant because of Jesus. The first Adam is not like the second Adam. What the first did to all of mankind pales in comparison to what the second Adam, Jesus, did for all of us. Therefore, get this, therefore, get over your bad self. Stop blaming your life. Stop blaming your choices on other people. You cannot say, Adam made me do it. Don't blame Adam. Don't blame mom. Don't blame dad. Adam only opened the door to sin. You had to walk through it. You're the one that gets to walk right back out of it as well. Because Jesus stands on the other side and he's opened the door of righteousness for us. Second thing, if you're struggling over some issue of sin and if you're beating yourself up over it because you're supposed to be a new creature in Christ, then take a tip from this passage. Instead of running from Adam and what Adam brought into the world, spend your time running toward Jesus. Folks, I don't know anybody who gets over some area of sin in their life by saying, I'm not going to do that, 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 I am not going to do that. Because all you're doing is reinforcing that you want to do this when you say that. 
okay? Instead of focusing on the sin and what went wrong, start focusing on the relief, the cure, and what goes right. Pursue Jesus. Don't run from Adam. Run toward Jesus. It makes all the difference. Most of this passage here that that I read from verse 12 to verse 21, most of this passage is not about what Adam did to us. It's more about what Jesus did for us. Therefore, pursue the bread of life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a lot of theology to get through this morning. And, and Father, I am so grateful, though, that you are who you are for us. Jesus, that you stand with the door wide open, inviting us into your presence, inviting us to step into your righteousness. We are sin sick. Even those of us that here this morning that are believers, we still struggle with the temptations of the old self, the old creature. Help us, Father, to see the gracious offering you've put before us in Jesus, the one who stands ready to usher us into your presence if we will but take the first step. And help us not get hung up on where we've been or what we find ourselves necessarily doing at any given moment. And help us not to to run away from Adam so much as we we run toward Jesus. Because as we've got our eyes focused on him, we're not going to sink. We're not going to fear. We're not going to get lost in the fray. We're going to go for the one whose eyes are focused on. And, And Father, that really needs to be our call this week as we move forward to be as Paul is, Forgetting what lies behind, I press onward toward the upward calling of Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.